Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. It's episode 160 of your favorite airline podcast. I'm Ben Baldanza, and this is Airlines Confidential. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. We're going to have a conversation with David Gunnarsson, the CEO of Doohop, an innovative technology platform that is powering interline and intermodal booking transactions. We talked a bit about them a while back when Bjorn Larson from North Atlantic Airways was our guest. But first, some news items. Ben, more quarterly earnings results, more profits, more bullishness about Q4 and beyond to 2023. From Southwest, Frontier, JetBlue, IAG, Iceland Air, Austrian. Hawaiian was the outlier, still struggling with headwinds from Asia. Any other interesting nuggets from the latest round of airline financial reports you saw? Well, like you said, Chris, lots of earnings, so we're not going to talk about each one. But in general, you're right. Lots of bullishness on demand. There was an almost unanimous view of demand being stronger in the fall than people were expecting, continuing what was a very strong summer. You're right about Hawaiian. They specifically pointed out their Hawaii Asia business, which is a really important part of Hawaiian's business, still being off. And Asia tends to still be the outlier worldwide in terms of not showing that bullishness in demand as we've seen. And from among the carriers that reported, Hawaiian has the most exposure there of the U.S. carriers. IAG, I thought, was interesting. They made commentary around both North Atlantic demand being strong, but also Asia being a little slow, and that was interesting. Overall, Chris, among the U.S. carriers, what I really thought was great was among the lower cost carriers, something we didn't see when Delta, American, and United reported, is they all talked about their cost structure in their earnings and their cost outlooks given rising labor rates, given fuel pressure, things like that. But it's clear that sector of the industry sees costs as an important way to compete long-term where we didn't exactly hear that from the big guys. And I kind of whined about that when we only had the big guys' earnings. So I was glad to see that the lower-cost carriers tended to do that. So I didn't really get much other than those from the others. Anything you picked, especially out of maybe the European carriers, Chris? Well, actually, I drilled down a little bit more into the Southwest comments and their results. 
they talked about their growth plans kind of into 2023 as adding back markets where so many of the other carriers have been kind of, not, I wouldn't say willy nilly, but they've been looking for the opportunities and moving into new markets pretty quickly. They said, we're going to focus on getting back to where we were in some smaller markets, but not adding a lot of new markets to their network, at least in the short term. They also talked about the pilot shortage a bit and said what some of our guests have, ta- have been talking about and we've been talking about, which is it's not so much a pilot shortage for Southwest. It's a lack of training facilities and simulator time. They have plenty of pilot applicants in their, in their pipeline, but it's really kind of getting them into the pipeline that's an issue. So a couple of those comments kind of stood out for me. Also on the European front, a little drama going on in Southern Europe is the new Italian carrier ITA goes courting for an acquisition as it separates from Italian government entanglement. I always thought the Lufthansa group was in the driver's seat, but it appears that Air France KLM is in the lead at the moment. They're also looking to take a stake in Portuguese carrier TAP. This would solidify Air France KLM in two popular leisure markets. But they're also very popular for ultra-low-cost carriers, especially Italy. Ryanair is saying they're going to have maybe 120 aircraft based in Italy by next year. So, Ben, does this make any sense? Well, to have 120 aircraft based in Italy by Ryanair would be a big surprise to me. But it is a huge leisure market from north to south in the country. It's a great place to travel for people from all over Europe as well as all over the world. So if Ryanair is going to bet big, why not a market like Italy? I agree with you that I always thought Lufthansa Group was in the lead, largely because their hub in Munich is right next to Italy, essentially, you know, a short drive into Italy from Munich. And from a connecting standpoint and from a local traffic standpoint, what Munich serves is at least correlated to what the Italian traffic market is. So Lufthansa's always had Italy right in its backyard. So to let Air France KLM come in and swoop that, it must be a price issue or maybe Lufthansa feels that because of Munich, they don't need ITA. It's just a real interesting dynamic going on over there, and we're going to have to see where it all ends up. But I agree with you that Air France KLM does look to be in the lead there, and it would solidify them well. Although with this big push by Ryan, if they really have that much, if they're hoping to get any high fares out of Italy, they're going to be struggling. Maybe uh, I was thinking when I read this, maybe uh, KLM's going to pick up their toys from Schiphol and move them to Italy. I don't know. But um, I thought it was, like you said, I I just was always kind of watching Lufthansa in this space. So maybe there's going to be a little bidding war. Italy's an attractive leisure market, like you said. I think the issue is how do you sustain a strong business travel market like so much of what Air France KLM are, but maybe they're just trying to build out their offerings. That's right, Chris. And, you know, your point about Schiphol makes perfect sense. If the Dutch government is going to say for climate reasons or whatever, we don't want people to connect 
in the Netherlands, then that's a lot of connection traffic that has to go somewhere else. So Air France KLM carries that traffic today. So rather than have another airline pick up most of that traffic through their hubs, they may see this as the opportunity to shift those connections, just like you said. I think that makes a lot of sense and may be why Air France KLM may be so aggressive in that bidding. Well, no matter who wins the bidding, Chris, they're going to need some help from Aerodata. Because if you're in the air transport business, you need to know that name, Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. And I've also got to wonder if Seabury Securities has got a dog in this fight. Uh, Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company and the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Finally, Ben, I'm sure many of our listeners have been watching and listening to some of the verbal volleys the last few weeks amongst airline executives and public officials, especially here in the U.S. And United Scott Kirby is in the middle of them. On the United Earnings call, he said the ultra-low-cost carrier business model is doomed in the face of rising fuel and labor costs, as they won't be able to offer rock-bottom fares. But then Barry Biffle said ULCCs, like his Frontier Airlines, will only thrive as their competitive advantage will become more pronounced. Meanwhile, the U.S. DOT and FAA officials are saying the U.S. airlines have only themselves to blame for the summer operational challenges, while airline executives are voicing more and more frustration with FAA's ATC capabilities. Scott Kirby, again, being the most outspoken, but executives of Delta, JetBlue, Spirit, and Southwest have all weighed in pretty forcefully. So, Ben, pick a side in these debates. Okay, well, in the Kirby versus Biffle battle, I'm going to vote on Biffle with this one, and I'll tell you why. I don't think Scott really understands the ULCC business model. The reason I say that is the higher fuel prices go, the higher everyone's fares go. But the ULCC fares don't go up as much because... They have more seats on their planes, so since they can spread that cost increase over more seats, the cost per seat doesn't have to go up as much. So as fuel prices go up, the advantage of the ULCC actually increases. It doesn't decrease. Now, Scott's right. The absolute fares will be higher, but that too benefits the ULCC because when fares are higher, more people consider themselves value kind of buyers. When everything is expensive, there are people who maybe normally wouldn't pick a Frontier because they'd rather fly United that might say, 
but you know, I'm paying so much for everything now, I'll save the money and fly Frontier on this trip. So I actually don't think the ULCC business model is doomed because of rising fuel at all. Labor costs are affecting everyone, but again, the ULCCs tend to benefit not on the price per hour they pay for labor, but in the productivity that they get from their labor and the seniority benefit they get from them because the crews and the workers at the ULCCs tend to be less senior on average than the big guys. So again, the ULCC advantage at least stays the same if doesn't grow. So on this one, Barry understands the ULCCs, but Scott doesn't yet. He's right about the fact that all the fares are going to go up, but the gap between the ULCC and the big guys is going to grow, and that's going to allow Barry's frontier to keep growing, I think. On the second battle, I think that Secretary Buttigieg is just doing what my wife likes to call external attribution. Can't be in my house. It's got to be everybody else, right? To say that all of the problems of delays and operations are just in the airline's house is just completely nonsensical. Flights don't take off unless air traffic control clears them. Airlines don't decide to hold or put a ground stop in. Air traffic control does that. The reality is there are at least four stakeholders, the airlines, air traffic control, labor, and airports. All of them have a role to play in addressing the operational challenges of the airline. Now, if Secretary Buttigieg would come up and say it's the airline's job to lead that coalition or they have the biggest piece of the problem, I might sort of support that and say, okay, you're right. The airlines do have a big role here. But to say that they're uniquely responsible for the operational challenges or can uniquely fix it just doesn't drive with reality. So I guess uh, going back to the top, Chris, I'll side with Barry Biffle and the airlines arguing against the secretary. I'm just going to say two points. One, I agree with you completely on the DOT issue. Second, on the Scott Kirby versus Barry Biffle debate, I think you're a very brave man to utter the words, I don't think he understands, because I dare you to use those words with your wife. Okay, let's just put it that way. So <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't sit very well, but I, I see where Scott's trying to go. But again, everybody's trying to defend their turf. And sometimes executives need to kind of step out of their role in their organization and talk more broadly. And in, in this case, both are just defending their own companies and their own business models, and that's what they got to do. But I tend to think that probably Barry has the edge there. Yeah, you know, and Scott was at America West, which was a very low-cost airline. But America West's advantages did come from lower labor costs and a generally low fuel price environment. What they did not do is do what the ULCCs do, 
which is have the density and utilization advantage and the ancillary revenue strength that allows you to sell the lower price up front because you get a lot of it back on the ancillary side. So Scott understands low cost, but he doesn't, in at least his commentary, seem to reflect those other important issues of the ULCC. I remember back uh, during the America West U.S. Airways merger, U.S. Airways stock trading code was just the letter U, which there are only 26 companies that have a one-letter symbol on the exchange, and so that was a very prized thing. But the America West team didn't want anything to do with that, and so they changed their stock ticker symbol to LCC, which they weren't for very, very long. But they were trying to send a signal in the context of how they were going to manage the new U.S. Airways, but we know that that didn't stick for very long. Well, as we go to our conversation with David Gunderson of Duop, a quick reminder that Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have with us David Gunnerson, who's the CEO of DoHop. It's a very exciting new website and he's going to tell us all about it. But first, David, welcome to the show, and tell us about your background and how you got to DoHop. Thanks, Ben, and uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you guys for having me. Well, I started sort of my career after I, uh, my education in the U.S. I started my career in the financial industry. And um, so I'm originally from Iceland, and I went to school. I went to university in the U.S., moved back to Iceland when I was 25, and went to the financial industry that was booming in, in uh, 2005 at that time in Iceland. And um, then three years later, it really wasn't booming anymore in 2008. So I left uh, or kind of was forced to leave, I would say. So Duop is a company that was founded in 2004, but I joined uh, shortly after I, I sort of left the financial industry in 2009, early 2009. So that's when I joined the company initially as head of marketing. And it was a very different company back then. But yeah, that, that kind of brought, is, is what brought me into this company. So I'm not natively from the aviation industry. I've never been in an airline, et cetera. Although I've been obsessed with, with um, airlines and, and sort of uh, airplanes, especially since I was a young, a, a young kid. But um, otherwise, that's how I got introduced to this. Okay, so David, we've gotten educated on how to say the company name, Duhop. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us what Duhop does and what problem are you trying to solve? Absolutely. So I'd say the core focus today, and, and like I said, the company is founded in 2004 and really started out um, as a consumer website, as a meta search website, and started the same year as Kayak, uh, so similar to Kayak and similar to Skyscanner, and 
Today, we are very different. So I've been the CEO of the business since 2015. And kind of starting around that time, or sort of 2014, 15, that's where we started to really shift the focus of the business towards being more kind of airline facing and working with and for airlines to help them solve sort of the problem of connectivity. I know that that's not a sort of, there are solutions to that already, but we have a different approach to helping airlines build partnerships and essentially building partnerships between airlines, but also uh, from airlines to rail or other, other transport providers. Well, that sounds very, very interesting. Now, in the hotel business, there's this site called Travago. And the reason I know them is because they advertise all the time. I think they're owned by Expedia. Compare yourselves to them. They seem just hotel focused, but they're a very consumer site. So you're saying that you're different than that? Yeah, so I'd say... So, well, that's kind of our background, though. I mean, well, we've always been flights focused, but our background is consumer facing, you know, meta search. And that's really what we've we've kind of evolved from. So now we're taking some parts of that same technology, which was all about finding connections that weren't there before. So low cost carrier connections, connections between LCCs and and kind of traditional carriers, etc. So that was what our, our previous business from a consumer perspective was all about. But Today, we still have the consumer angle a little bit. We still operate a flight search website and some sort of connecting flights bookings under our own brand. But the main focus for us today is helping airlines build partnerships and helping airlines sell you know, interliner connecting flights to other airlines and also servicing those passengers. So it's we're quite sort of different to, to Trivago and different to what we were in that sense, whereby, you know, our customer technically today is generally an airline, but through the airline, through the carrier, the, the passenger or the end, the end customer. So David, ultimately the consumer, as they're interacting with Duhop technology, are they seeing this as a separate entity from the air carrier or is it all stitched together and integrated? The answer to that is that it depends. So some of the airlines that we work with and you know, we kind of helpful to say that we started this out mainly in the low cost carrier space. So EasyJet was our first customer. We launched a product with them that they call Worldwide by EasyJet today. And, you know, EasyJet's an LCC in Europe for the second biggest LCC there. And um, we started out helping them to sell, you know, connecting flights online. So within their network, but also to partners. And it all flows from that, that, that essentially... When we sell connections um, or, or power connections for an airline, sometimes the customer sees the Duhop brand uh, as well. So it's a co-branded solution, but sometimes the customer only sees the airline brand and it's very tightly integrated. And the customer is provided with the experience that, that they're booking with the airline. They might see our brand somewhere along the way in the, in the booking process as they check out, but mainly it will be related to the servicing element. So... I think that's the sort of big additional thing that we have. You know, we're kind of a technology vendor to airlines in general, but we also provide the servicing element. So if an airline like EasyJet or like other LCCs who tend maybe not to sell connecting flights, if they want to sell connecting flights, we help them do that. But because they don't have the processes to 
let's say, provide the reaccommodation or, or service like that to the passenger when a connection is missed, we provide that service as well. So that's a, that's a key strength that we sort of bring in. That's very interesting. Does anybody else do this, David? Do you have any real competitors trying to solve this same problem? Well, we, we do from a sort of consumer perspective, if you will. So let's say, you know, in the case where we are helping a, a, an LCC sell connecting flights or where we are connecting an LCC to a traditional carrier, those connections generally, you know, do not get made anywhere. They don't, they don't get created except in the sort of consumer world. So uh, there's, a, there's a website called Kiwi.com that was kind of the pioneer in doing this direct to consumer. Well, but we thought it might make sense for us to do this um, and provide that same capability directly to the airline. So essentially, instead of selling this under our brand and just operating independently of the airline, we very much work with airlines to deliver these same or similar connections for them and allowing the airline to retain ownership of the customer and kind of have full control over what's being sold and what's being, you know, who they're partnering with, on what sectors and all of all of those things. So this ensures that the carrier is comfortable that sort of we are generating incremental revenue rather than you know cannibalizing any existing business. Well, so you talked about uh, your strength with low-cost carriers as being your primary customers. You know, they have traditionally not wanted to embrace other channels like the GDS. Why are they interested and attracted to your business model? Well, I think it's the simplicity, right? So we are, you know, for, and we do certainly work, a lot of the carriers we work with are, are low cost, but we do work with carriers like Air France, Avianca, and of course their model is changing a bit, but we do certainly have some full service carriers in our portfolio, in our network. But I think the LCCs are attracted because of the simplicity. So a carrier like, you know, I can use EasyJet or Transavia as an example, another LCC in Europe, whereby they continue to operate their point-to-point -point model, but we kind of bolt on the ability to sell connections within that point-to-point -point network uh, or out of that network to long-haul carriers that fly, that fly sort of transcontinental into Europe. So we not only do we enable that, you know, very simply kind of stringing together two separate sectors and being able to allow the airline to sell that to the customer, but we also provide the servicing elements for the passenger. So any post-sale servicing, but also the day of ops reaccommodation for the passenger, which is key. So it allows them to continue to operate a simple model, which is, of course, at the heart of the LCC model, but realizing the benefit of connect, selling connecting flights. More do-hop do-wop in just a moment, but thanks to Pratt & Whitney, our world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. Well, David, you've talked about this technology that creates connections for your airline partners. Can you explain this in a little more detail, but so that everyone can understand it? Uh, the reason I'm asking especially is when I was running Spirit, 
we were always convinced that a lot of customers connected on us from Southwest Airlines just because physically at the airport we were at, Southwest flew to many stations we didn't and vice versa. And it was physically very easy to get off a Southwest plane, walk through a garage and get on a spirit plane. And even though we had no relationship with Southwest, we were convinced there were a lot of people connecting because we could see people walking through the garage. Mm-hmm. So how does your technology work? And in a case like I just gave you, how could you help those two airlines do it better than just letting the customers figure it out? Well, that's I mean, that's a very good example because that's exactly the market that we're after. So somebody like Spirit operating mainly point to point, yet seeing opportunities like this and being able to, you know, capture them because you're, I guess you're, it's about value, right? So you're providing, you know, there's the, the customers are stumbling upon this. They're figuring this out that they can, that, you know, they can sort of retrieve this value somehow, uh, getting off a Spirit flight and wandering over to a Southwest flight and, and continuing their journey. So it's about allowing the airline to capture that value. And the way we do it from a sort of very simple step-by-step is, first of all, we calculate or we figure out what are the connections that physically can be made. So based on minimum and maximum connection times, terminals, and different things. And what are the airlines that a certain airline that we're working with wants to, you know, what are the other airlines that they want to partner with? So if Spirit would have wanted to partner with Southwest, we would have worked that out. We would have said, okay, at these 30 connecting points, you can have 500 connections a week, sort of in terms of the available connections. We'd pre-compute that. And then we would allow both airlines or could allow both airlines to make those available in their uh, airline.com channel. So basically on their website. Um, And that's where the customer could find those connections. And what we also do is we extend the sale of those connections out from the airline.com and into the meta search space. So we have uh, agreements with Google Flights and Kayak and Skyscanner to make these connections available in their websites under the airline brand in order to get them in front of the customer where the customer is looking. Now, this works very well in, in low cost because I'd say low cost is really good at selling a, a big portion of their flights on their own website. Now, when we talk to full service or, or traditional carriers, they might sell only 30 or 40 or 50% in their own channel on the airline.com, but rely on the trade or TMCs or things like that. So that's been our challenge is really building out that distribution capability and being able to make this available in a wider context. But that's kind of the, the long and short of it, of, of how we would string these sectors together, allow the customer to find them on the airline.com or in, in Metasearch, and then uh, allow the customer to have a single checkout uh, and ending up with two separate sectors and a small service piece from us that works like insurance and allows us to pick up the customer if they get stranded. If there's a delay on one of the flights, we pick up that customer and get them on their way. So you're doing some interesting things on the, I'll call it the B2B side with regard to your focus on one of your customers being the airline or the travel mode, you're doing some intermodal connections as well, right? Mm-hmm. So from a consumer standpoint, how do they have confidence that what they're seeing is the best deal? 
why do they not need to go to a meta search and compare? What's the consumer value proposition here? Well, I think the main proposition that we look at is just choice. So it's 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 the airline providing additional choice to the customer, right? So, you know, the way this works is that this can work very well next to existing code shares or interline that the airline may have. If it's a traditional carrier that's used to selling, you know, full interline, IATA interline agreements and, and things like that. So this can work very well, well as sort of incremental, more options, more and, and making more options available to the consumer is the thing. And then you surface all of that and you allow the consumer to make the choice based on price or convenience or, or you know, O&D or whatever they want to, whatever they're trying to achieve. So I think if we go kind of back to your point on, you know, how do we know that this is the best deal? It, it doesn't, it isn't necessarily always the best deal, except when it is, I'd say. So simply providing this as additional opportunities that has, we've, we've seen that with many airlines that we work with, and there are about 60 today. And we've really seen that um, this really expands whatever they're working on, you know, expands their network and allows them to serve more customers. So as you continue in this growth pattern, which sounds like it's um, going at a pretty impressive clip, can you shed any light on kind of your volumes or how many searches a day or how many transactions, anything to kind of demonstrate to our listeners how you're becoming a player in this space? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we're still, we're still a small company. So we have about 20 airlines that are our direct customers. And then we have another 40 in our portfolio that are sort of their partners, the partners of those 20. And, and, and we're starting to see a network effect, really, because whenever we add an airline into the portfolio, the network you know, grows kind of exponentially, if you will. So we are 75 people today, companies based in Iceland, um, but we have only about 50 of those in Iceland and the rest sort of spread out around the world. And those 20 airlines, because we make the, their combinations available on the airline.com and also in MetaSearch, we're seeing sort of between two and five million searches a day that we are that we are dealing with. And then at some point next year, we're looking at sort of where we're on the way to, to doing about a million connections in a 12-month period. So that's kind of sort of roughly the level that we're at without disclosing too much. Well, let's try to sell Duhop to more people. So let's pretend I'm running an airline that's not using Duhop, but I'm very nervous about my IT because I don't have enough people and they've got 40 projects and only enough people to do 20 of them. And I'm worried generally about my airline's ability to execute. What's your pitch as to why right now Duhop will really help me and how can I be confident it'll work for my airline? Well, first of all, and, and that this is an argument from many airlines, this is pushback, right? You know, we don't have IT resources. And that's kind of what we've tackled from the beginning is we've always operated on the assumption that airlines struggle with IT resources. So we do almost all of the heavy lifting. So we bring this in its entirety as a bolt-on. It bolts onto the website. We built a small website that's like an alternate booking flow that the customer gets pushed into when they select a specific origin destination that is, in fact, kind of powered by us, by our partnership program. So I'll start on airline.com and then I select a destination that's outside of the airline's network and is not part of whatever interlines or co-chairs they may have, etc., and then I get pushed into this alternate booking flow that we provide. We customize it to make it look and feel like the airline. 
and the customer completes the booking. So the only um, IT lifting that the airline needs is, is to make a decision on their on their front page when, when the customer is selecting origin destination is when to push the customer into this alternate booking flow that we provide. So we take care of almost everything except that first step. Now, if an airline wants to do full integration, we can, of course, supply that as well. So everything, all of the content that we have can be supplied to be fully integrated directly into the airline website, sitting alongside directs, co-chairs, other interlines, traditional interlines, and then this. But that's rare so far. I'd say there's also a, a pretty big thing, which is that we do serve the customers. In most cases, we are providing the service to passengers that misconnect. And a lot of the airlines that we're talking to, and this might be a concern, you know, from, from your standpoint as, as, you know, you're questioning your airline's ability to execute, is that we're saying to the airline, look, we'll take over the servicing of some of your customers. And airlines are certainly sometimes reluctant to do that, but we have a very highly rated customer service that we operate in a few different countries across languages and time zones and et cetera. And we do that pretty well. We've been doing it for about seven years. And we're specialized in, in providing that kind of service. So while it's, it's sometimes an objection uh, from, from airlines that we work with, it certainly is something that we can do and deliver pretty well. So I'd say as, a, as an addition to whatever an airline is doing, whatever kind of airline, it may be, you know, we, we have a bit of a history of working with low cost, but a lot of the traditional carriers that we are speaking to, they are interested in this as, as incremental, as supplemental to whatever they're doing today and, and seeing this as an additional opportunity. And then, of course, what we open up as well is intermodal. So we, we mentioned that a little bit earlier, but that's really connecting to not only to air to air, but also air to sort of surface sector. So, David, as we wrap up, let's get at your crystal ball. Tell us uh, where Dohop's going to be in five years and what's the industry going to be talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, the industry is talking a lot about, and, and we are kind of in that space as well, you know, uh, NDC, offer an order, and we want to be a force for good pushing in, in that direction of, of full offer order environment for airlines, etc. We also, and, and primarily, we want to be the go-to partner for any kind of connectivity, whether it's you know, air to air to rail or bus or rail to ferry or whatever it is. We have the tech and the products to be able to do that. And that's the positioning that we'd like to have in the future. This has been terrific, David. Thank you very much. Duop sounds like a terrific product that every airline should be looking at. I especially like the platform nature that you just spoke about, that potentially as a customer, I could someday be seeing connections from the airline to a train or to one of Chris's cruise ships or something like that. Absolutely. Thanks again, David, for joining us all the way from Reykjavik. And we hope uh, we've got a nice listener base from Iceland uh, every week. So we hope this uh, helps us grow out there as well. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. 
From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential and a big thanks to David Gunnarsson for joining us. Time now to take some listener questions. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Chris, our first question is from Luis in Indiana. Hello, I've been learning a lot from the podcast and listen to the episode every Wednesday. I want to ask what you think the chances are about the government changing the 15-hour rule, lowering the 15-hour rule in the next couple years. Also, what other countries would you recommend me that I pursue flying jobs? I speak Spanish also. What advice would you give Luis, Chris? Well, Luis, thanks for those questions. Uh, on your, your first part with regard to what are the chances of the government lowering the 1,500-hour rule, I would say zero in the next couple of years, especially while the Biden administration's in office. Um, so I don't think you should count on that at all. Um, I assume you want to be a pilot, and so I hope you're continuing to accrue hours, but uh, I don't think you should wait for the 1,500-hour rule to be lowered as your entree because um, that's not going to happen anytime soon, I don't, I don't think. With regard to where else to look, um, given your Spanish language skills, I would say you must obviously go south. There's a lot going on in Mexico. There's a lot going on in Latin America. Um, so I think there are plenty of opportunities as ultra-low-cost carriers come into the market through the consolidation of the major players. They're building very strong networks. So I think there'll be opportunities for growth there as well. And they're kind of weeding out the, the underperformers as Consolidation brings you know, three, four very strong competitors in Latin America. So I think, again, that'll give way to some growth opportunities. Ben, what do you think? I agree, Chris. I think Valaris, Latam, and Avianca, which is creating a new pan-Latin group they're calling Abra, those would all be great opportunities if you're willing to work for one of those airlines for a while, maybe build up more time with them. The one way I might, I'm not sure if it's disagree or just modify what you said about no way the $1,500 rule is changing. I think you're right on the key law, but I could see even the current administration continuing to use more exceptions to allow some possibilities for lower numbers of hours. Today, for example, you don't have to have 1,500 hours if you come from the military or if you come from a certain type of school or things like that. You also don't need it if you fly for a Part 135 carrier. You only need 500 hours. So you can essentially build your time there as well. And so that idea is if some airline or some group finds another way to get an exception without changing the rule, I could see that potentially happening. But I agree with you, Chris, on the general tonality that I don't expect a big change in this rule over the next couple of years. 
And Ben, this question's right up your alley. It's from Megan in Nashville. Can you explain to me the logic of an airline crew transferring from aircraft to aircraft during the course of a duty day? It just seems like it would be more efficient to align their duty more closely to the movement of the aircraft. It's a great question, Megan, and maybe you're destined to be an aircraft scheduler or a crew scheduler. Most airlines actually do try to do this. The challenge is that the physical airplanes fly anywhere from 10 to 14 hours a day, depending on the business model, but no crew can fly that long. So crew schedulers and aircraft schedulers are each trying to optimize what their own asset does, whether it's the plane or the people. And so the plane's going to go where it's got to go, but sometimes the crew can't take the next trip. The crew may only have a couple hours left on their duty day, but the plane's going to go fly a four-hour trip. So they have to go to a flight that's not as long and somebody has to come in to take the trip at that point. So your idea is great, but if you only scheduled the planes for what pilots can fly, you'd have a very low utilization airline. And if you schedule the pilots for what the airplanes could fly, you, you would basically be illegal because you'd be flying too many people too often. So it's a great idea and airlines do try to do this as much as they can, but they each have a different optimization to make on the physical asset of the airplane and what the crews can do. And often that's why you see a crew connecting from one flight to another. Well, with that, and I love questions like that. So thank you, Megan. We're going to give our shout outs and my shout out goes to Bear 747. And as some of you know, this is the big brown bear in, in Alaska that won the Fat Bear Week contest. But this brown bear weighs 1,400 pounds and is named after such an iconic airplane. So what could be better than that? So Bear 747, I hope you have a great hibernation. I love that one. And I'm going to give my shout out to one of my homes away from home, Wilmington, Delaware. I've spent a lot of time there over the years with close friends. Wilmington and Delaware are on and off the list when we talk about commercial air service to every state in the country. Uh, they've been off the list when they've lost air service. They're getting back on to complete the total of 50. Our friends at Avello are adding five new routes and actually going to be creating a a base there in Wilmington starting in February. So congratulations and, and good luck as that new service starts up after the holidays. Absolutely. Good luck to Avello on that one. And with that, I hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you next week on Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.